Thank you so much. Thank you for that kind introduction. And this is unusual in all kinds of ways, but one is I can't really see who I'm speaking to. Uh, I only have a couple of faces here on my screen, just the organizers, and I thank you all for uh, having me do this presentation. As I was saying before we got started, I'd much rather be in London doing it live, but um, I'll settle for this and happy to have folks joining in. Uh, uh, so I'll, I'll act as if uh, I'm just in my study alone, basically talking to myself, which I do a lot of, um, and forgive me that I can't engage with you more directly. So um, I'll have a combination of slides and then I'll read texts uh, at different points. Uh, so, uh, and forgive me, I'm just hoping that this is gonna work the way it, the way it should. Um, uh, let's see here, I'm gonna try to advance the slide. Um, we already have our first glitch now, for some reason I can't advance the slide. Hmm. Uh, okay, there we go. Um, so this book um, was my uh, first major life work in the discipline. Um, uh, culminated in this book that was published in 2009, Rights, Race, and Recognition. And I took up the question of how do we acquire rights? And one of the things that being uh, sheltered in place has done for me, and maybe some of you have similar stories, is giving me a chance to reflect on my life <laughs> and, uh, and my work and uh, with all this going on. And I thought I would revisit the, some of the views that I articulated and defended in this book at this time, in part because I had a number of critics over the years who were gracious enough to commit uh, their thoughts uh, about the book uh, to writing and, and, and responding and, and journal articles and so forth. And, finally had a chance to just take tally of some of the criticisms and wanted to do something to, to, to give responses to certain serious concerns. Um, but the other thing was just to think about how the work I did early in my career um, is connected to some of what's going on now. And so I'll start with this. Uh, some of us saw in the news last week in New York City, um, there was a report of very aggressive policing to enforce social distancing in New York. And this is one of a number of stories that have made national news uh, and, and uh, that made news in various outlets nationally in the US. And this video was a pretty extensive video of a police arrest of a young black man um, um, who was part of a group of people that were accused of not um, having sufficient social distance between them. And so I was particularly infuriated by this video, um, maybe a little more upset than usual because I'm actually here in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And the other thing that made news in the US recently are protests that took place in the state capital of Michigan, Lansing where a group of people essentially stormed the Capitol uh, demanding that Governor Gretchen Whitmer um, reopen up the state, or as some people were saying, liberate the state of Michigan. And so there were tons of people, and this was a scene inside the state Capitol 
while we have been under an order to while we have been under an order to social distance. And so in addition to this, we also saw people who were heavily armed at the state capitol. And as I watch these scenes and I thought about the arrest in New York, uh, I talked with friends about this and many of us felt like things would have been very different at the state capitol if the protesters were black or Latinx, um, black and brown people. Um, and similarly, I thought things would have been different in New York City if the people being accused were, were white and not, not black. And all of this made me remember uh, an event that some of us will remember. Um, March 3rd, 1991, there was uh, what, had, what, had, what has since become a very famous incident involving the Los Angeles Police Department and a brutal beating of uh, Rodney King. Um, and uh, some of the scenes that I was seeing made me think about this, this incident. And I remember at the time when this took place, many of people that were having conversations said very explicitly that this would have never happened to a white person, this kind of brutal beating of the police, um, um, by the police. So right now, one of the projects that I'm working on is a book for a general audience that is part memoir and part narrative nonfiction on hip hop and democracy. And my startling thesis in this book is gonna be that conscious hip hop can actually help save our dying democracies. Now I'm thinking about this thesis in the context of America, but having traveled all over the world and interacted with people who do hip hop in other places, um, I think probably the thesis could be extended to other democracies where we find young people using this powerful art form to call into question the workings of different world democracies but I'm thinking particularly about the United States. Now, the same year that Rodney King was beat, beaten by the police, a very famous rapper named Ice Cube released uh, an album um, called Death Certificate. And there's a video for one of the tracks on the album called Steady Mobbing. And it begins with the following skit. An LAPD cop wrestles a black man to the ground and says, I'm gonna treat you like a king. And the young man asks, what king? And the cop replies, like Martin Luther King, like Rodney King, like all the kings from Africa. And it seems to me that there, there's, a, there's a lesson here uh, that this skit was communicating to us. I think it supports a very familiar sentiment that we find in black and brown communities in particular, which I had encountered at the time when I was working on my dissertation thesis. So 1991, I was actually a graduate student at Pittsburgh. Um, and so I was in the thick of developing this project. 
And when I talked about the project back home in Queensbridge and in other parts of the city where I had friends who weren't in graduate school, they weren't academics, and I told them that I wanted to try to work on this view of rights that really reflected the idea that having a right had to be something that was part of one's lived experience. And when we looked around at incidents like Rodney King and other instances of police brutality and ways in which black people aren't treated in the same way as whites, one could have a sense that it seemed kind of wrong to say that there were rights at work when such treatment was taking place. And so back home, this seemed to be more of the common sense view back in Queensbridge and on the streets. But in the, the academy, it was far from common sense. In fact, people thought it was crazy, counterintuitive. Um, how could you possibly think this? Um, people certainly can have rights, they're just not being recognized. And so, Channeling Ice Cube here, I would, I would say, well, the kind of rights that we really care about are ones that save us from being treated like kings, right? That, that could be a way to spin, spin this point right here. So dressed up for scholarly audiences, I eventually came to call this position rights externalism. And the basic thesis is that being a right holder is a social status that's constituted by social practices that prescribe, promulgate, and enforce ways of acting and being treated. And the goal that I set for myself as a graduate student was to try to work this position out and introduce it to the space of theoretical options in the theory of rights. And so, I mean, I had, I had my work uh, cut out for me. And I had sort of a segment of this where I want to give you sort of a little background of what happened at Pittsburgh, but I'll, I'll skip over that for now and just say, I've had many critics, as you might imagine, over the years. Um, and for those of you watching who are still in the early parts of your career, it's not a, it's not a bad thing to have critics. You, you want critics. It, 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 keeps, it keeps business going, essentially. So I was fortunate enough to pick a topic that a lot of people thought was uh, 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 engaging, but also uh, problematic. And so I've had critics. And the bottom line is many of the critics have said that this position is, is too costly. That's one kind of objection that I've had to contend with. And um, um, recently, this criticism has been pressed by two philosophers who I respect very much, I think a great deal of, and who, have, uh, who I've learned very much from are Charles Mills and David Lyons. And so in this piece that I'm sharing with you today, I'm mainly focusing on addressing criticisms that are coming from the two of them. In this abridged version, I'm gonna mainly deal with criticisms that have come from Mills. In the written version, I take up some issues that Lyons has raised. Um, now, uh, basically the point of the paper is to say rights externalism has virtues and some of the shortcomings that my critics have identified, you know, I don't think that they're as devastating as the critics have uh, suggested. And I think this is my, my, my final, you know, it's certainly my latest, but I think my final effort to, to make this point in, in, in print. Um, 
so uh, one basic idea then is to take, to take this thought that rights should be thought of as rooted in lived experience. You know, you might call this the hip hop perspective on rights, thinking about Ice Cube. Uh, and as I said, the folks back home at the time applauded me for keeping it real. You tell them, Derek, you know, tell them how we should think about these rights when we reflect on our experience, right? But in the academy, of course, I was, I was you know, criticized. So let me, let me then start um, with, with this. Uh, here's Charles Mills and most recent critic uh, saying that he believes that I'm wrong and that this is a case where the conventional wisdom gets it right. And so let me begin with, with this. Raymond Goyce characterizes Robert Nozick's assertion in the preface of Anarchy, State, and Utopia that individuals have rights and there are things that may not be done to them without violating their rights as just the announcement that one proposes to build a castle in the air. Nozick's castle, constructed with the same natural rights principle used by John Locke in the second treatise, was erected to serve a libertarian agenda. It called for a minimal state to provide persons with security against force, threat, theft, fraud, and breaches of contact, but not much more. And it supplied this protection by ascribing natural rights to persons, rights taken to exist prior to and independent of any recognition and enforcement by other persons, groups, or the state. This impulse to posit natural rights is ecumenical. It has equally served those with libertarian as well as radical egalitarian agendas. Liberal egalitarian philosophers with more expansive views of state power that include the rectification of historical injustice and the mitigation of social, political, and economic inequality have also found it congenial to build castles in the air constructed of recognition-free rights to serve these progressive ends. For example, in making his case against American racism and for racial equality, Martin Luther King Jr. ascribed natural rights to black Americans, saying every man, regardless of race, has rights that are neither conferred by nor derived from the state. They are God-giving. And King adds, what a marvelous foundation for any home. We see therefore that white libertarians and black liberals have both used rights to build castles in the air. While they may disagree on many matters, they agree that recognition-free rights have normative utility. The view that persons possess certain rights, call them natural, moral, or human, that are not within the gift of state authority, or not conferred by social recognition more generally is the conventional wisdom in philosophy. Black radical liberals such as philosopher Charles Mills, one of my critics, who sometimes takes pride in departing from conventional wisdom to do the work of racial justice, as for example, rejecting the social contract for the racial contract, is not willing to give up all the master's tools. King offers but one example of how the idea of natural rights can be used to advance the moral cause of racial justice. So to claim as I do that there are no recognition-free rights 
not only bucks the majoritarian philosophical consensus of an overwhelmingly white profession, says Mills, it flies in the face of the longstanding moral convictions of the black civil rights movement. My rejection of the conventional wisdom regarding rights seems all the more surprising, according to Mills, given my allegiance to this movement and to the larger project of realizing racial justice and black freedom. On this point, says Mills, I believe Darby is wrong and that this is a case where the conventional wisdom gets it right. Mills's blunt question to me is how can a true black radical champion this noble cause without the rights needed to secure the foundation of the castle in the air? Before turning to Mills directly, let me motivate and summarize my recognition-based conception of rights drawing on a historical instance of the racial justice struggle, slavery abolition in antebellum America. Developments in the philosophy of rights have often been driven in response to hard cases, ones that challenge or support our basic assumptions, pre-theoretical intuitions or practical aims. Quite often these hard cases are generated by thought experiments, which are the product of an active philosophical imagination. However, they can also be the product of attentiveness to concrete historical facts or to the lived experiences of those whose rights have been denied. The case of black chattel slavery in antebellum America is an instance of a hard case that has informed philosophical thinking about the source and value of rights. For some philosophers, including King and Mills, this case motivates positing recognition-free rights to defend the morality of abolition. For other philosophers, it motivates positing recognition-based rights to capture the lived experience of being a slave. What makes this a hard case in my view is that it serves both to illustrate the utility of asserting that individuals have recognition-free rights and to raise doubts about this assertion. Slavery abolitionists in the United States often asserted that black chattel slaves had a right to freedom. If they were under the influence of Immanuel Kant's practical philosophy, they may have also believed that an innate right to a free life was the only original right belonging to every man by virtue of one's humanity. Setting aside this latter point for the moment, a cursory study of American slavery may leave one perplexed by the abolitionist assertion because it is manifestly ambiguous. Whether or not slaves had a right to freedom or any other rights for that matter, depends in part on what kind of rights were at issue. It is commonly assumed that slaves had no legal rights under slavery, and we know that slaveholders had legal rights to black slaves. Human slaves were viewed and treated as mere chattel that could be brought and sold like cattle, farm equipment, land, and real estate. And like all forms of chattel, black slaves were also passed on from one generation to the next and could be used in all the ways prescribed by the laws of property. So given these facts, along with more complex factual description 
of the status of blacks under the institution of American slavery? How might we philosophically unpack the abolitionist assertion that slaves had a right to freedom? One way to proceed is by distinguishing having legal rights from having non-legal ones. The latter category might be further distinguished in terms of social and non-social rights. That is rights whose possession stems from social norms and practices in contrast to rights whose possession is entirely independent of such norms and practices. Hence, when someone says that they have a right merely in virtue of their humanity, or they have a right merely in virtue of having a valid claim, they are invoking a non-social conception of the source of rights. For example, as one proponent of such a view puts it, moral rights in the relevant sense are rights whose existence depends on principle and fact, not on social recognition or enforcement. The essential difference between this conception and the one that I vindicate in this essay is over whether or not some form of social recognition is a necessary condition of possessing a moral right to freedom. With these distinctions in hand, the foregoing facts pertaining to the status of blacks under chattel slavery suggest that insofar as abolitionists meant to claim that black chattel slaves had a legal right to freedom, they were engaged in wishful thinking. Individuals that had a legal right to freedom could go and come as they pleased, could buy and sell property, could have children and raise a family without fear that their children would be taken and sold at auction to the highest bidder but black slaves in antebellum America clearly could not do these or many of the other things that individuals with the legal right to freedom could do. For individuals that could do these things, their status as right holders was not about what they hoped to be able to do or ought to be able to do, but about what they could do. For these individuals, having a right to freedom, a right to go and come as they please was part of their lived experience. So what might abolitionists have been saying when they asserted that black chattel slaves had a right to freedom? Perhaps abolitionists were really saying that slaves had a moral right to freedom, a right that was non-legal and for that matter, non-social. That is a right whose possession is not rooted in how one is treated. And here abolitionists might further add that slaves had the right to freedom even though it was not being recognized by government upheld by the rule of law or otherwise established within informal social but non-legal practices. And to return to Kant, they might apply his general point to the case at hand by claiming that the slave's right to freedom was an innate right, which the slave possessed merely by virtue of being a human being. Obviously, if they did this, they would readily concede that this right to freedom was not part of the lived experience of slaves, so to speak. Yet they would quickly add that this is precisely the problem with black chattel slavery. It violated or disregarded the slave's moral right to freedom. I shall refer to the following as the abolitionist thesis. Black slaves had a moral right to freedom even though this right was not in any way socially recognized or part of their lived experience. From this perspective then, social recognition, whether formal legal recognition or informal non-legal recognition is not a necessary condition of possessing a moral right to freedom. And taking it to be so would effectively undermine the main purpose of positing such a right in the first place. 
namely to give us a vantage point for normatively criticizing the practice of black chattel slavery that is entirely independent of the contingent social realities established by existing legal or non-legal, but social norms and practices. While I concede that there is some utility in the abolitionist thesis and that it represents the prevailing way of thinking about the, this matter, I believe that this is also an instance of wishful thinking. The problem is not with wanting to take normative issue with the slave's lack of freedom under slavery, or to put it another way, with wanting to condemn the legal institution of slavery as it was practiced in antebellum America. Rather, it is with taking the slave to have a right to freedom when doing all the things that free persons can do is not part of the slave's lived experience. Whatever possessing a moral right to freedom amounts to, if it is a right that one truly possesses, then freedom must be part of one's lived experience. In other words, possessing a right to freedom must make a concrete difference in the social world in terms of how one can act or how one is treated. And since this is a function of the presence of certain social norms and practices, these are necessary elements for possessing a moral right to freedom. What is gained by embracing a general conception of moral rights that takes some form of social recognition to be a necessary condition of possessing a moral right? Apart from gaining a socially rooted understanding of the source of moral rights, we also open up an avenue for appreciating a normative way of condemning the legal practice of black chattel slavery that does not require us to look outside of all existing social realities. And this will be especially appealing to theorists that wish to eschew looking entirely outside of social practices, to castles in the sky, to capture why some practices are normatively objectionable. So here I have a, a section that um, expands on how we might go about um, the normative business, but I'll, I'll not, share that here, um, but we can talk about it later. Let me see if I can uh, advance my slide. Once again, it seems to not be cooperating. Um, so, uh, oh, I can't get it to move. Okay. Okay, I may have to give up on it. Uh, let's see, one more time. No, it's not working. Okay, well. Let me just abandon it and just keep moving. The struggle against black chattel slavery in the United States was difficult, not only because it was profitable, but because slaveholders turned to the nation's founding ideals to defend it. As distinguished slave historian Ira Berlin reports, the doctrine of natural rights, which gave us impetus which gave impetus to the first emancipation movement also sanctified property rights so that both abolitionists and slaveholders found comfort in the words of the Declaration of Independence. Pernicious appropriations of rights and the status of being a right holder have long been sources of skepticism about these categories. They have been rejected for representing social subordination and social inequality as both right and natural. For slaveholders, their supporters and advocates of states' rights appealing to property rights to defend slavery 
was hardly enough. They also contested the cogency of ascribing rights to slaves, both from the standpoint of law and morals. Steeped in racist thinking and aided by the science of race, defenders of slavery claimed that slaves being of an inferior nature had no rights at all. They represented black subordination and white supremacy as natural and beyond man's power to change. The most infamous and well-known example of this can be found in an 1857 U.S. Supreme Court Dred Scott decision. The main issue before the court is that in this case was whether Dred Scott, a slave, held his property in Missouri, but who had temporarily resided in the free territories of Illinois and Wisconsin with his master could sue for his freedom under, the Missouri, under a Missouri law holding once free, always free. In a crafty decision delivered by Chief Justice Roger Taney, the court did not question whether slave, whether dread could become free by living in a free territory. Instead, the court denied that dread was ever free at all by holding that the Northwest Ordinance of 1787 the 1820 Missouri Compromise were unconstitutional. And thus the, that Congress never had legitimate authority to outlaw slavery in Western territories. And as if this were not enough to block Dred's quest for freedom, in a further dramatic step, the Chief Justice rejected the very idea of applying the status of right holder to slaves with the following remarks. For the remainder of this paper, I'm gonna to refer to this as the dread puzzle. When I first encountered this puzzle many years ago, I was struck by the presumption that having rights was linked to race. I wondered what the underlying account of how a subject came to be a bearer of rights was. On my reading, which was partly informed by a study I had been doing of 19th century pro-slavery ideology, the general conception of the source of rights Underwriting this puzzle was that having rights was taken to be a matter of a subject having a certain nature or being constituted in a certain way. It was obvious how this ontological conception was particularly accommodating within a society where differences in the legal status of free persons and enslaved ones were rooted in race and purported intellectual, effective, and moral differences between the races. The great philosopher and abolitionist Frederick Douglass also noticed this connection between rights and nature. He once observed that when the Negro is denied something that is rightfully his, such as his freedom, he is alleged to be an inferior man. Yet an important difference between Douglass and myself is that he did not question the underlying ontological conception of the source of rights invoked by the court. Instead, he accepted it and directly argued against the Negro inferiority thesis to use the discourse of rights to argue for black emancipation and civic equality. This is certainly one way to proceed in response to the dread puzzle. Another way to proceed is to reject the underlying ontological conception altogether, which is the strategy I pursued in rights, race, and recognition. Douglas's response to the dread puzzle, which accepts the recognition-free conception of the source of rights, is straightforward and clear about what we gain by embracing it. If the prevailing conception of what having rights amounts to, 
holds that perspective right holders must have a certain nature, then one way to expand the realm of right holders to include subjects that have been excluded is to argue that they have the relevant nature. Now, I'm not saying that this isn't an argument worth having, but I'd rather not have my conception of what having rights amounts to turn on the outcome of such an argument, especially in the society where one of the founding fathers made the following observation about blacks. Quote, comparing them by their faculties of memory, reason, and imagination, it appears to me that in memory they are equal to whites, in reason much inferior, as I think one could scarcely be found capable of tracing and comprehending the investigations of Euclid, and that in imagination they are dull, tasteless, and anomalous. In a deeply racist polity where racial thinking of this sort runs deep, I do not think that there's much to gain by arguing about against allegations of black inferiority to demonstrate that blacks do indeed have rights. I must concede, however, that we may still run into some troubles here with any kind of normative argument for extending the realm of right holders, where moral principles have to be joined with matters of fact about the nature of subjects to make the moral case. And if this is so, the shortcomings of making such an argument within a racial polity may seem unescapable. How should we respond to the dread puzzle? Was the Supreme Court wrong? Was it careless? Was it morally confused? However we respond to this puzzle, a philosophical engagement with it demands that we probe the meaning, source, and value of rights. Furthermore, a philosophical response that considers the dread puzzle and these foundational matters in the general theory of rights with attentiveness to the legacy of race, racism, and black subordination and white supremacy requires us to consider some of the defining features of what Charles Mills calls a racial polity. Combining a philosophical study of rights and race with attention to how the United States polity was once divided by persons and subpersons yields a counterintuitive and provocative response to the dread puzzle. Namely that the court was neither wrong nor careless, but rather was offering an accurate assessment of social reality or lived experiences of blacks in a racial polity at some level of description. I must admit, I find this response compelling when thinking about what having rights amounts to. And ironically, it bears some similarity to Mills's response to the puzzle, which is why I find his disagreement with me so surprising. In his essay, Who's Fourth of July, Mills concludes, Tony was wrong on the details, but right on the principle. His central underlying rationale is basically entirely correct. Blacks were seen as an inferior race who could normatively, legitimately, morally be subordinated by the white majority. Tawny is the indiscreet speaker who blurts out in public what is supposed to be mentioned only in private, that the polity is a racial one. Shortly, I'm gonna present and rebut Mills's interpretation of my response to the dread puzzle, which will suffice to show that his criticisms of me missed their target. But let us first consider three positions that one might take in response to the dread puzzle on the question of whether slaves had rights. One position is that slaves had rights, so the court was wrong. 
The other slaves did not have legal rights, but they had moral rights, so the court was careless. The third is that slaves had a moral right to be free, so the court was morally confused. Now, one could read Mills's response to the dread puzzle as rejecting C, but to appreciate the significance of this rejection, one needs to be clear about the meaning of the claim. When read simply as a claim about what ought to be the case, morally speaking, the point is that within a racial polity where beliefs about, about black inferiority are sincerely held and blacks were taken to be excluded from the realm of possible right holders, the court was rejecting the claim that slaves ought to be free. And if one associates claims about what ought to be the case with claims about what one has a moral right to, then the court was indeed denying that slaves had a moral right to be free. Thus, from this perspective, the court was not at all morally confused. It was merely working out the implications of life and beliefs within a racial polity. But of course, neither Mill nor I would agree with the conclusion that slaves ought not be free. Though Mills would be more inclined than I to rely on the premise that slaves had unrecognized moral rights to defend this conclusion. In other words, he'd likely rely on A and B. If one reads attributions of rights simply as claims about what ought to be the case from the standpoint of morality, then one will owe some kind of argument fleshing out why this or that ought to be the case. So abolitionists would need an argument for why slaves ought to be free, and pro-slavery defenders would need one for why they ought not be free. In the absence of such arguments, appealing to a right seems to be nothing more than a placeholder or a promissory note. One way for abolitionists to fill in the argument for why slaves ought to be free would be to claim that they possess a right to be free, and not just any kind of right, but one that slaves have independently of whether or not they can or cannot act in the prescribed ways. So if the right in question is a right to freedom, the point is that slaves have such a right, whether or not there are social practices in place, where they can freely go and come and please, as they please, and do all the things that free persons typically do. Indeed, some philosophers have held that the postulation of such rights was precisely meant to give us a way of explaining why slaves ought to be free, even if the laws and practices of every existing society condemn them to be slaves. Setting aside the obvious problem with taking rights to be claims about what ought to be the case, and then explaining why such and such ought to be the case by making recourse to rights, this postulation of recognition-free rights raises the important question of how one comes to have such rights. Some philosophers have suggested that the rights are rooted in the nature of our being. And of course, this contrasts with being a view of rights that takes them to have something to do with what takes place in the messy outside world. By making social recognition a necessary condition of having rights, I incorporate facts about the messy outside world into my analysis of rights possession. And I claim that as a virtue of this, it allows us to view the status of being a right holder as somewhat within our control, within our power to change, and is a status that can be fought for and can be won or lost. I contrast this with taking right holder status to spring from our nature, 
which suggests that the status is entirely independent of our actions. I think that the former view is more empowering perspective in a racial polity, where what seems to be most needed is bringing it about that slaves are treated in a certain way, rather than viewed as having a certain nature. It may well be that seeing them as having a certain nature helps bring, a, bring it about that they are treated in a certain way. But from my point of view, however it is brought about, it is the treatment that matters first and foremost in the final analysis. From the point of view of the slave, it does not matter whether a master frees the slave because it comes to view the slave as a moral equal or because the master becomes convinced that enslavement is no longer economically profitable or because the master becomes convinced that slavery is contrary to the will of God. What matters from the slave's point of view is that the slave is treated as a free person. I think that this is part of what Benjamin Miller, an ex-slave, was getting at when he remarked, I was in bondage in Missouri too. I can't say that my treatment was bad. In one respect, I say it was not bad, but in another, I consider it was as bad as could be. I was a slave that covers it all. I had not the rights of a man. Okay, so how are we doing for time here? We've got maybe, we still got a little time looks like. Um, According to Mills, I accept a rather unpalatable conclusion regarding the dread puzzle. Slaves did not have rights, so the court was right. But Mills puts the emphasis in the wrong place in getting me to face this implication. The interesting demarcation is not between having rights and not having them, but between rights tied to forms of legal recognition and non-legal forms of recognition. Furthermore, he misses the fact that a recognition-free conception may face this unpalatable implication as well. For example, if one asserts that only persons with the capacity to comprehend the investigations of Euclid possess rights, and one believes that Blacks cannot do this, then the unpalatable conclusion follows. Indeed, this is, seems to be precisely the logic involved in the Dredd decision which Mills argues is not confused at all. Had Mills put the emphasis in the right place when characterizing my view, he would see that there's something to be gained by embracing the recognition-based view in a racial polity, where slaveholders cannot entirely avoid interacting with slaves in ways that acknowledge their humanity. While it is certainly a consequence of my view that if the recognition constraint is not satisfied, then slaves have no moral rights, Nowhere in rights, race, and recognition do I claim that the recognition constraint is not satisfied. To the contrary, on account of claiming that recognition need only come formally via the legal practices, but that it can come informally, and on account of claiming that it is difficult to imagine slaves being excluded from all forms of community with their slaveholders, where we find evidence of an acknowledgement of their humanity, it is practically impossible for slaves to be without any rights whatsoever. Mills will have to find another way to argue that my view sticks us with the unpalatable consequence and that my view is profoundly antithetical 
to the entire spirit of the diasporic black struggle for equal rights and modernity. And if he succeeds at this, which is no small feat, he has yet to show that recognition-free conceptions do, do not also stick us with this conclusion. One of the more troubling concerns about my argument raised by critics is that my claims about the relative advantages, politically or critically, gained by embracing it over the prevailing view are insufficiently developed at best and false at worst. I set out to show that the prevailing view has certain drawbacks, one of which is being used as an instrument of black subordination. But I give the impression that my view leaves us better off on this score. Giving up some ground to my critics on this point, I admit that any conception of rights can be put to dual uses. So this is not a special problem for the prevailing view. But my point still suffices to shake our confidence in the indispensability of the abolitionist thesis. Even if I concede, which I do, that the recognition-based view can be used as an instrument of racial subordination. If this is the case, then as Lyons observes, for all practical purposes, effective use of the two conceptions would seem to be identical. If we compare the two conceptions fairly and even-handedly, we have reason to suppose that one conception is likely to be, we have no reason to suppose, I'm sorry, that one conception is likely to be morally more useful than the other. If this is true, then I have made, I have made a significant contribution in unseating the prevailing view as the only game in town. Indeed, in rights, race, and recognition, I aspire to do no more than this. As I say in the book, my main concern is simply to show that rights externalists can also give a political justification for their position. It would clearly take much more work to show that one side has a clear cut political advantage over the other. Facing a draw on this point, some may choose to hold on to the prevailing view. However, if one finds the idea of connecting rights with lived experiences attractive, which I do, then the prevailing view will still be unsatisfying. And at a minimum, my argument will have shown we can rest assured that the alternative recognition-based view leaves us no worse off when it comes to combating racial injustice or arguing for reform. This is a modest conclusion, but one I'm happy to accept and take credit for. Lyons objects that I do not produce sufficient data to evaluate the differential consequences of recognition-free and recognition-based conceptions of rights. While I certainly do not produce any hard data on this, defenders of the recognition conception have never offered any data of their own. Perhaps this suggests a certain futility in adopting a social criticism criterion of adequacy to choose between competing theories of rights. But if this is the case, I believe that the absence of comparative data is more devastating for the prevailing view since the purported advantage of this view over recognition-based views in facilitating the critique of racial injustice has been the main point in favor of it. Okay, in conclusion, in the racial contract, Charles Mills quotes James Baldwin. Negroes wanna be treated like men, a perfectly straightforward statement containing only seven words, 
People who have mastered Kant, Hegel, Shakespeare, Marx, Freud, and the Bible find this statement utterly impenetrable. Whatever else we wish to say about having rights, what having rights amounts to, particularly with respect to distinguishing moral from non-moral rights, I think that a certain kind of treatment is absolutely essential to having them. And so I propose that some form of social recognition is a necessary condition of being a bearer of rights. When we look back to how Dred Scott actually became a right holder from the standpoint of law, some three months after the Supreme Court ruled that he had no rights that the white man was bound to respect, we find that this was because Dred's owner freed him and in freeing him, he could have certain lived experiences that were previously unavailable given the prevailing practices of one kind of community, one governed by the highest law of the land. Just like my critics, I believe that Dredd ought to have been free to go and come as he pleased with impunity, free to sell his labor for a wage, free to read and write, free to sue in court, and to do all the things right holders in the broad political community could do. Though making a case for this conclusion was not the main task of my book. My primary purpose in rights, race, and recognition was to defend imposing a social constraint on having rights. I admit that the argument for this view may not be as strong as one would like to have, particularly on its comparative political advantages, but it does have one clear cut advantage over all versions of the recognition free views. It offers us a viable conception of the source of rights to philosophers who prefer a conception more deeply rooted in concrete lived experience and rights externalism will be much more appealing to those of us who are utterly uninterested in critiquing racial injustice with castles in the air. Thank you.